This is Fordham Conversations. Good morning. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Kevin Cahill, who recently moderated an expert panel discussion on the Haiti earthquake crisis and humanitarian action. Dr. Cahill has extensive knowledge on the issue of humanitarian aid. He's president of the CIHC and university professor and director of the Institute of International Humanitarian Affairs at Fordham University. And these are just a few of his extensive titles. Dr. Cahill, welcome. Thank you. Now, we all hear about the tragedies that happen in Haiti uh, and that are happening right now after the January 12th massive earthquake humanitarian assistance has really struggled to provide the necessary resources that the nation has needed. So, Dr. Cahill, um, tell me about the panel and how you how you started it and what were some of the um, outcome? Well, Fordham University wished to, uh, as much as they could, educate their students and their faculty about the situation in Haiti, and uh, Father McShane, the president, asked if I would pull together a panel on really quite short notice. Uh, In fact, in his inimitable way, I think it was a two-day notice. And so what I pulled together were a number of people who had worked in Haiti and who had worked in humanitarian crises, and they included uh, Paul Brown, the deputy commissioner of the police department in New York, who lived in Haiti for three years as part of the International Police Monitoring Force. And then there was a Time Magazine war photographer named Robert Nicholsberg, who also had worked in Haiti uh, at a time, and had just returned, by the way, a couple of days before the panel from two months in Afghanistan. So these are remarkable people who work in, and I'll get back to that later, work in crises all over the world. And the third person on the panel there's a man named Ed Tasui, who is the deputy head of the United Nations Office, First Department of Humanitarian Affairs, and then the Office for the Coordinating of Humanitarian Affairs. And then I chaired the panel, and uh, my background includes working in various crises areas around the world. And so that what we tried to bring out were both the immediate data and the based on visual images, like Bob Nicholsberg presented a lot of photographs of Haiti, and Paul Brown talked about the security issues because the New York Police Department and Fire Department had sent down some rescue uh, teams to get people out from under the rubble. And they saved, uh, what, six people, some children also? Right. They did have, and I think there there are many teams from around the world, but the Police Department did have that wonderful picture of a eight-year-old boy who was pulled out after seven days under the rubble, and he comes out, his arms are wide, and he sees his mother, and you can see this side. So all of that was presented as visual material. Ed Tasui outlined how the world community responds. There's a process to responding to disasters, and whether that disaster is the Pakistan earthquake or Nicaragua, I headed the medical services in Nicaragua after their earthquake. I worked in Guatemala after their earthquake. But there is a basic fundamental way of approaching each one of them. They differ. Haiti probably had more problems because it had more problems before the earthquake. I mean, before the earthquake, it was the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. It had grossly inadequate medical services. It had obviously no building codes since all the buildings fell down and if that happens to the buildings you can rest assured that's happening to the water supply and the sewer supply and you lost much of whatever even poor infrastructure there was before you lose a lot of that when you're 
know, United Nations building collapses, and there are some United Nations peacekeeping, but there are somewhere there's 60 to 70 proved dead and still another 40 or 50 missing. So you take your really basic infrastructure. The hospitals had collapsed. The government palaces had collapsed. There was no government functioning. And they even had uh, four successive tropical storms before that, which hit the island since August 2008. So it was pretty extensive um, damage even before, as you said, before this earthquake in January. Well, and that's very, very important. And so the world's response is tempered in each disaster, whether that disaster is a man-made disaster like an earthquake or a conflict disaster like Rwanda, say. And so it is tempered, and yet there is a process. In other words, as soon as an event occurs at the UN, there are rapid response teams that go in and do an assessment. And then there's an, well, you, you take that assessment and you come back and say, well, what can we offer from different countries? In this instance, the United States, both because of proximity and because of the vast scope of the disaster, is probably the only country that could respond. And this gets in a humanitarian crisis to be a, a, a question right at the beginning. Who does respond? Is it just humanitarian workers, <clears throat> whether they work through the United Nations or through various non-governmental organizations like Save the Children or Concern or... or you call upon the military, and there was almost no way you could not call upon the military in this situation because no one else could get 11,000 troops on the ground, you know, within a week or so. No right. one else has a, a ship that has, you know, a 1,000 beds on it for medical needs. And so the, or this becomes an absolutely important thing to understand that there are crises, not all crises are the same. Doctors Without Borders very often shies away from working with the military. But in the Pakistan earthquake, for example, you couldn't get up the mountain unless you had the helicopters. And in the Haiti earthquake, the scope of the thing and the lack of any infrastructure in Haiti almost mandated the involvement of the military. I say all of this because when I ran the Nicaraguan earthquake, I remember writing a congressional report and in the early phases, the military just is wonderful. And then a month or so goes by and a Marine, you know, hits a child or somebody rapes a girl or you have a car accident. And so the military has a time that no one else can do what they can do. And yet there's a time, if you want the country to regain its footing, there's a time, particularly in Latin America and the Caribbean, and I know Nicaragua, where the Marines have been invading since 1855. And so after a month or so, instability starts to return. There's a time when the military probably should get out and turn over their resources. So the, this was the scope of that uh, conference held up at Rose Hill and Fordham. I'm Robin Shannon speaking with Professor and Dr. Kevin Cahill here on Fordham Conversations on WFUV. Dr. Cahill recently put together a panel to discuss humanitarian efforts in Haiti. He did this at Fordham University. Now, Dr. Cahill, what do you hope the audience took away with them after the panel was over? And I think it, it drew a fairly large crowd, and I hope that people went away a little more aware of both what the immediate crisis was, which is Haiti, but also how the world can and must respond, because disasters, uh, man-made or conflicts, are really that interface between the developing and the developed world, between those who have and those who have not. And I think that's why our institute at Fordham uh, is, is really
really so important. We started, I started in working in humanitarian crises back in the 60s, and in those years there really wasn't even a common vocabulary. People didn't agree on what constituted a complex humanitarian crisis, and you couldn't go from UNICEF to save the children or vice versa because no one agreed on what your training was. And Fordham has now, through the Institute, we've now trained over 1,400 humanitarian workers from 127 nations. So it's it's really a very remarkable area of education and a very remarkable, it was almost like establishing a new profession. It started with a feel-good. Everybody wanted to help. But after Rwanda and the people fled to Goma in the Congo, you may recall, there were hundreds and hundreds of well-meaning non-governmental agents, agencies working there, and no one knew what was going on. Right. Now, following a technique that has developed called the cluster technique, people under, and that's where the Office of the Coordination for Humanitarian Assistance comes in, people going down to an earthquake or any other disaster area should go in knowing what they offer and how that can interact with those other players on the ground already. In the immediate response, again, there's sometimes very well-meaning people, but one of the things that came up at the conference at Fordham was the feeling that some humanitarian work and workers and agencies felt their supplies weren't getting there and that they were being denied landing rights at the airport. And that's proven to be a problem, not just with efforts going on uh, in New York, Fordham, and in the surrounding areas, that there is a concern that all the money or some of the money or some of the aid is not getting to the people that are most in need. For example, a lot of uh, Port-au-Prince is getting aid, but the surrounding areas are not. And people are fighting and there's there's mayhem because of the lack of food, the lack of water, and the supplies are there. They just can't get to the people. Yep, and yet there's sometimes explanations. I was going to really say that this, there was a particular agency that felt their supplies weren't getting there, and they've tried to fly their plane in. But if you have an airport that has been damaged and it has only run one one runway, and you don't have air control, you're going to have planes hitting into planes. Right. And so somebody has to be in control, and they turn that over to the American air control system, uh, basically the military, to determine... And yes, there's always going to be errors in the chaos that surround humanitarian crises. I mean, people will complain that, you know, you gave your first efforts here and you didn't get out to the outlying area for another seven days and there's mayhem. And yet, as I say, after my wife died a few years ago, I figured I had worked at that time in 65 countries. I've seen pretty much the mayhem and also the wonder of that early days. It's very easy to be critical it's, uh, and, and that's what the press tends to focus on. It's very easy, if you haven't done it before, to, real, to realize how chaotic it is. But then you see other pictures within a week in the papers around New York, at least, you know, of babies being born, and they're intense. And yes, it's not, you know, it's not like having your baby at a perfect obstetrical unit in uh, a fancy New York hospital. But it is life, and before it started down there, it was pretty bad. But I think it was Heraclitus, a Greek philosopher, who said that out of adversity comes opportunity. And so one hopes maybe, maybe, 
that out of this terrible calamity in Haiti, you will find some structure that's better. And that there have been examples of that, by the way. I mean, taking go back to Rwanda again, there was there is a better functioning government now than there was before the genocide. A lot of people died in the process, but there's now no longer you know two different distinct tribes. As education is being fostered. Uh, in fact, there's there there are opportunities here, and I I really think that as the time goes on, we'll see the good that that there can might result be some it. good. And the most important is that people at Fordham and in every other place begin to realize they're on the they're brothers and sisters with the people of Haiti on the same you know globe. We can't get away from it, and you can't sort of deny that the, we're very blessed here. And so there was a real response, I thought, by the students. In fact, Father McShane, uh, the president, closed the conference by saying he wanted a competitive philanthropy so there would be a competition between Lincoln Center and Rose Hill. Yeah. And you cite an example that everybody knows happens, and it happened in Katrina, and it happened in other places in Hurricane Katrina, where the money donated did not always get to the people, and so there will be, hopefully, not too much of that, but there will be some of it, and there was after the tsunami. Uh, But I think at the Fordham one, the decision was made to give the money to the Jesuit refugee services that had teams on the ground there and to Catholic Relief Service, and they, I believe, are very, very respected universally for delivering, you know, the 95 percentile of the money to the victims, and not victims, but to the people that you serve. And you don't want to look on people as victims. They are victims. And They're victims of a circumstance. But, but you want to never maintain that sort of philosophy that we're the, better, we're the you know, rich people coming down and you're the victims. And so the sooner that it gets over to involving the Haitians themselves and the reconstruction, the better it's going to be. Now, when you uh, were moderating the panel at Fordham, what did you find, or was there an agreement of some sort as to what direction the humanitarian aid should have gone? No, I can't say that uh, there was a present. The presentations, as I told you, uh, were by very experienced people who have seen firsthand the chaos that always occurs, and they were very honest and open about how you start and how you stumble sometimes through that first phase, trying to continue to do assessments while you're delivering aid and then realizing that this isn't the greatest need, that this is the greatest need. And so I think that was very honestly exposed to the audience. And then there will be decisions that really are a mixture of political and humanitarian. Most humanitarian crises have a really significant political component to them. For example, if you have a strong government, you don't want the humanitarian external foreign humanitarian aid coming in and destroying the respect that the citizens have to have for their own government. But if you don't have a functioning government, sometimes the world community must come in and really direct more than you would like to do uh, because the government just isn't functioning. There are no facilities. There are no people 
in command. And now you have people who are texting. You know, if you can, if you text to a certain number, then the phone service will provide ten dollars for humanitarian aid relief to Haiti after the earthquake. And that was my question: Was there concern? with not just where the money was going as far as the government goes, but in general how it was going to be handled here. Yeah, I think you want to stay, if you're giving money, with credible organizations, and they're not difficult to find. I mean, they're, you can look down, and people who know how to use the Internet can find that various organizations with good reputations. It's like finding a doctor or a lawyer. But that's not the long-term thing that you need. What you need is immediate help, but then you need some structures to get development started as early as you can. Once the intervention of the crisis intervention is over, you have to start thinking where are you going to have your schools. The first thing that mothers want and children want is to go under a tree and have, call it a school, call it whatever you want, but they have to be safe and secure, in which they're not because if they're just wandering around a camp, they get kidnapped and made into sex slaves or child soldiers. So there's a real security issue to getting a school started. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. I'll be right back with Dr. Kevin Cahill discussing the Haiti earthquake crisis and humanitarian action. Hi, I'm George Boldarki. New York City is full of surprises, and we love discovering them each week on Cityscape. It's a show we like to describe as an exploration of the people, places, and spirit of New York. Listen for it Saturday mornings at 7.30, right after Fordham Conversations. You never know what we'll discover. Now, Dr. Cahill, let's elaborate a little more on the education and humanitarian aid. Even in chaos, children fundamentally have the right to education, and you have to sometimes prioritize. First, you have to get them out from under the rubble, and then you have to get a tent up and shelter and food. But what happened over the years was education was not recognized as a fundamental right of children. And then in the Millennium Development Goals, it goes back to 2000, the rhetoric was there, but it really hasn't been followed through. And education, particularly in areas of conflict can be a very dangerous thing. Teachers are sometimes the only educated people. Sometimes children, as I say, you can you can learn that where your camps are can sometimes promote uh, almost the seizing of children if it's right next to a main highway. And so you have to have security. It's a complex field, but what the fundamental text of the book is, is that I try to get people who had the voices. I have a young woman who was a child in Yugoslavia, and I wanted her to write about what it was like to be trying to go to school during the bombings in Sarajevo. Or And what did she say? Well, she tries. To, the bottom line is that's what their deep desire was, and you can t- you can a child can lose not only its innocence, but they almost lose their childhood if you deny them education during a critical phase of their life. My work in Africa, the uh, children going to even what you call a school under that, it becomes terribly important because you can very early on when they gather and get mothers around, you can show them what uh, landmines look like and so that they shouldn't pick up these things and blow their arms off. So education doesn't have to necessarily mean giving them the you know, the ABC or the how to count or write on a blackboard. That's part of it and the discipline of there. But part of it is how to survive, 
to survive in these areas and even thrive in these areas sometimes. But you have to teach them about things like landmines. You have to teach them about why drinking water out of a dirty well can be very, very dangerous. Why strange people coming up and asking them to go away or take candy with them is not a very good thing because they'll never see their mother again. And so education uh, and schooling is a phenomenon that I think is growingly recognized as a, a fundamental right of children and that societies, particularly those of us who work in humanitarian crises, had to almost educate ourselves that this was almost as important, the spiritual and intellectual life of a child is as important almost as the physical life that you're trying to save. And what I'm going to do now, Dr. Kale, I'd like to talk a little bit about you and your beginnings. What motivated you to get involved in humanitarian aid? I know you, you're a doctor, but what motivated you to really go out to these places and help these people? I think the question really was how did I personally get involved in it? And I think like so much of life, it's a series of very fortuitous accidents. I was raised in an Irish Catholic immigrant family, so we were made aware, I think, of the plight of other immigrants who weren't as well. My father was a family doctor, and in those years, the family doctor had a great role, at least among the extended family of the Irish. Were you brought up in New York? In in the Bronx, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think I had a great sympathy for the underprivileged. And then I was in medical school, and I had the opportunity to, I got a grant from the Lehman Foundation, and I actually went to Calcutta and spent almost six, five months there. And I really loved it. I came back, uh, you know, just I had seen a different world, and I was working at the School of Tropical Medicine. But as I had once written, that being young and indefatigable in the market, I would go out after the workday at the Institute of Tropical Medicine, which was from 7 to 1, and then the heat got so bad. And I went out, and there was this Albanian nun taking care of people in the gutter, and she grew up to be Mother Teresa, but I knew her when she was just a, you know, an unknown Albanian nun, and I'd worked wow. there. And I stayed in touch with her all her life, actually, and so I came back from Calcutta, a totally changed person. I really knew there was something different in the world that I had never seen before, I actually went on a third-class railroad car through much of India with, you know, cows and goats and people having babies and sleeping on the roof. And when I came back, I was down at Bellevue, and people would have an unusual case and say, well, look, you were over there, you write it up. And so I did that, and then as you got out of medical school in 1961, everybody was drafted, and I was drafted into the Navy, but blessedly, the Naval Medical Service sent me first to England to finish a degree in tropical medicine and then to Egypt where we lived uh, for the next two-plus years. And the my mandate was as director of clinical tropical medicine for Africa and the Middle East. So you went to epidemics and you did a lot of things that you never, ever, ever could have done if you had taken a routine training program in this country. And I came back and I became a teacher of tropical medicine. I serve as the professor of clinical tropical medicine at New York University, but I also started a program for missionaries, the Tropical Disease Center at Lenox Hill Hospital. And then gradually, 
as I say, I was in Somalia in the early 60s, and I went back, I kept a team there, and I went back for 35 consecutive years doing research papers, but I walked from the top of that country to the bottom. It took me three years to do it, and uh, wrote a lot of papers and books about, two books about Somalia. You so walked for fun? I'm sorry? You walked for fun? Or? No, no, no. I walked following nomads, drawing blood, uh, and trying to determine the patterns of disease there, and that's what a research field research is about, or my field research was about. You want to understand the people. And so, well, you have to understand their diseases, and that was what we were studying, how, how were diseases transmitted. As I say, Somalia was a totally forgotten place. Uh, the Italian and English that dominated it after World War II did not see it as the English they saw the rest of East Africa. There were a lot of research facilities and medical schools in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, but there was nothing in Somalia, absolutely nothing. And so it was like a virgin territory. Anyway, I came back just having both had early experiences with great disasters, and gradually people, or you work with the United Nations, you work with various organizations, but I did lots and lots of refugee work uh, in different places around the world. In fact, after my wife died, as I said, I sat up and you make these notes and you, I figured I had worked in 65 countries at that stage, but she had come to 45. She was, so I think that's another element. How did you do what you do? I don't think I could have done it without the both the patience and the tolerance and the support of this remarkable woman to whom I was married. And, of course, she was not a physician, but she used to say, Kevin, that's what you're down on earth for, so go ahead and do it, and we'll just somehow figure out what to do. And so I think a lot of factors come together that make it possible for you to do things in this world, and that's what I've done. What do you Are you putting together another panel? What are the next steps uh, as far as uh, humanitarian aid and action for Haiti as far as Dr. Cahill is concerned? Yeah, I... As I say, I serve as the chief advisor at the United Nations, and so in a sense I'm at their disposal to call upon. So I think I, I will continue to do that sort of input. I will go to Haiti if there's any desirable, and there may well be that the General Assembly, which is 192 nations, wants to say they want their chief advisor to give it an assessment report as to where it's going now. And so I, I'm leaving that. It, I flow with whatever tide comes along. I think at Fordham we will continue to try to use education, which is the function of a university, to keep the people informed. And I will do, and the staff at Fordham at the Institute will be available. As I said right from the beginning, uh, an operation at the early stage where no one but the scope of the military. Someone has to have the big cranes to come in and get the buildings out of the way. Someone has to, you know, get a sewer system going again. Someone has to get a water, and that has to be governmental more than anything else, but international <clears throat> governmental support, and then the non-governmental will implement some of the programs on the ground. Former President Bill Clinton um, has been named International Coordinator for Relief Efforts in Haiti. Basically, he said that He's uh, made an appeal for short and long-term funds to help the country. So, uh, Dr. Cahill, if uh, former President Clinton asked for your advice, what would be the main advice you would give him? Uh, to work with those agencies that are reputable <clears throat> and good, and I think they can be identified during this reconstruction phase, and to try to have the Haitian 
people themselves define their own system so that it has a sustainable quality to it. Now, this is a difficult task because there is such governmental collapse at the present time that it's difficult to see what, when I say governmental systems, but maybe you hope out of this will emerge, and it has in the past been the truth, that there will be an awareness of who really is very good or honest, and there'll be controls and audits to make sure that they don't do what they've done in the past, and that is just take all the money. Uh, President Clinton has asked for money, and so it's easy to get the money. The world has responded very, very nobly as it did after the tsunami. What you want to make sure is that that money goes to things that have long-lasting benefit. And my last question, have you heard the uh, Haiti CD that's raised quadruple amounts of dollars for Haiti relief? I haven't heard the CD, but I know, you know a number of the people who sang on the CD. And you take Bono, for example. He uh, has done this before. I think people in public, the public eye, whether that's singers or actors or actresses, there's a great, great tradition of their generosity in terms of giving their, you know, their name recognition and their talents to raise money. And that's the money can go to the right sources. So there are some things that even these actors and actresses and singers they may come out better people, not just the people they're raising the money for, but they'll be better people because they're involved in a, a common effort to try to relieve suffering. That, that's what makes us better people. My thanks to Dr. Kevin K. Hill, president of the CIHC and university professor and director of the Institute of International Humanitarian Affairs at Fordham University. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Next week, Mary Wilson will be your host. Stay with us, George Bodarki and Cityscaper next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Lean on me when you're not strong.